Well, thanks very much for that in, uh, introduction. It, it, it's a real privilege for me to be here and to tackle this really challenging and, and difficult topic of what it means to die well and also what it means to die faithfully as a Christian believer. Um, none of us can predict how our lives will end, but I think that's why it's desperately important that we start thinking about it now uh, while we have the opportunity. Um, I'm speaking as a medic, having cared over my professional life for many people at the end of life, uh, both adults and many children and babies, as my work as a paediatrician. But I'm also a son who's lost both parents, one from very prolonged and painful process of dementia, and as a Christian believer who wants to know what it means for me to die well. So these are not issues that are just out there in society. Of course they are. These are very big issues in our society. One of the things I, I sense is a change in the atmosphere. People are wanting to talk about this more. In fact, uh, something that's happened on the mainland, I don't know if it's happened here, is this rather strange thing. It's called death cafes, where people meet together with a cup of coffee and a bun and talk about death. I, I think it's, it's slightly sad that people feel that the place to go is not to go to the church to talk about death. In fact, it's the last place you would go, but they want to talk about it in a, in a safe place um, with a cup of coffee. So there is an appetite to talk about these things, but I, I sense that often, as Christian believers, we find it amazingly difficult to have these conversations, to have these conversations with loved ones about uh, what it would mean to die well. Because the truth is that most people are unprepared for dying and they don't want to think about it. If you ask most people how they would like to die, I think you can predict what the answer is. The commonest answer you will get is, I want to die in my bed while fast asleep. I don't want any kind of awareness, I don't want any kind of premonition, I don't want any kind of warning, I don't want any kind of knowledge or anything. I just want to go out like a light. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And, you know, I can hear, look at some people sort of smiling and saying, yes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Actually, the interesting thing is if you were to go back three or four hundred years and ask Christian people how they would like to die, it was generally agreed that sudden unexpected death was the worst possible way to die. To be catapulted into eternity with no possibility of preparing yourself no possibility of preparing to meet your maker. No possibility of asking forgiveness for all the things you've done. No possibility of saying goodbye to your loved ones. No possibility of making preparation, of passing on the last words, of encouraging people, uh, of asking forgiveness. What a terrible way to die. And in fact, there's a collect in the Church of England which specifically prays against sudden death. And yet here we are in the 21st century and we now think sudden death is the best possible way to go. And I think it actually tells a lot about us, including, I have to say, a lot about our selfishness and narcissism, that all we're interested in is that we might have something unpleasant that might happen to us. We're not thinking about anybody else or what the implications of our sudden death in our sleep might be for others. We're just thinking about ourselves. So actually, I don't want to die in my sleep. I, I want to have the privilege, having watched other people and seeing that actually dying well could be a wonderful experience. Yes, not an easy experience, but something profound and, and even life-changing 
Um, I'm, I've seen that dying well doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. In fact, it can even be a strange kind of adventure. And um, so I want to try and, 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 and help us to think about this and, and look at particularly what are the opportunities that dying well could bring. But I've been uh, very struck by the fact that um, death has become very medicalized. Death and dying used to take place in homes. It was something that, that was, a, was a natural thing. Everybody would have seen somebody die. Everybody would have been at the bedside. It was something that the Christian churches often celebrated and talked about, the way that someone died and, and everybody was there around the dying person. But now death has become medicalized. Most people die in an NHS hospital. And they die behind curtains, surrounded by anonymous professionals, with medics who are making all the decisions about what treatments to give and when to switch off the life support machinery and all those kind of things. And, and the trouble is we've, as modern people, including modern Christians, we tend to collude with that. We, we expect treatment with the latest technology and the wonder drugs and brilliant surgery. And, and it's the medical team who tell us what treatments are available. And the natural assumption is that we will be compliant patients in the unceasing battle against death. And this idea, you know, we grasp at stories about new cancer treatments and gene therapy and regenerative medicine and transplant surgery. But of course we know that death cannot be held forever, but we prefer to focus on the positive. Death is an enemy to be fought and we will keep on fighting. There's a funeral director in Wheaton who said that the most common Bible verse that families put on funeral announcements or read at services is 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. But then the funeral directors went on to say, except they're not talking about spiritual things. They mean this person tried every medical option to stay alive. Isn't that terrible? That this idea of fighting against death is what it means to fight the good fight. A Christian physician, John Dunlop, says medicine is good but not when we are shaking our fists in God's face and saying, no, I'm not going to die yet. And I think one of the unhealthy things that happens in, in relationships at the end of life is sometimes there's a kind of pretense that comes in. I, I've seen this on a number of occasions, including with Christian people, where the person themselves is maintaining this very positive demeanor. I'm trusting God. I think he's going to heal me. I'm having faith. Um, and, and they don't want to admit that actually they're desperately frightened that, that they are going to die. And then the relatives are trying to sort of say, well, they're worried they're really dying. But I'm believing. We're trusting. You're going, God's going to heal you. And, and, you know, and the medical team enter into the, the delusion. And you get this strange kind of game playing and pretense that instead of well, those last days being times of real honesty and openness and face-to-face -face, you know, healing and completing of relationships sadly those last days turn into a sort of strange kind of charade and a game playing and um, it's one of the strange things is that there is evidence, certainly in the States, and it's possible that it's true here as well, that religious believers are more likely to insist 
on futile and unnecessary and burdensome treatment than non-believers. There was a, a big study done in the States where they took a large group of people dying from cancer and they had terminal cancer and they were all expected to die within a year. And they asked people right at the beginning of the study whether or not they used, quotes, religious coping as a way of dealing with their illness. And because this is the USA, you can guarantee that the majority of people who said yes to that question would have been Christians, at least nominally. And then they followed them through over the next period to see what actually happened to them, how they died. And the study showed quite clearly that people who said they used religious coping were more likely to insist on futile and burdensome medical treatment. They were more likely to die in an intensive care unit. They were less likely to have a do-not-resuscitate order. And they were less likely to have nominated someone else to help make decisions for them. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I found that really bizarre and, and, and sad. Um and counterintuitive. But when the researchers asked the question why, they came up with two conclusions. One was that a lot of religious believers say, well, you've got to have every possible treatment because life is good, and if you don't have every possible treatment, then that's like euthanasia, and it's wrong. So if the doctor suggests a treatment, you've got to have the treatment. And the second answer that people gave was, well, I'm trusting God to do a miracle, and I'm trusting that God's going to heal me, but if I'm having faith, then I've got to be admitted to the intensive care unit to, to give God the best chance of doing the miracle. I mean, if I'm, if I'm not admitted to the intensive care unit, then I'm not having faith. So you get these bizarre kind of arguments which people use, which the end result is that many, many Christians die very badly. They die with failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is a horrible way to die, with people jumping up and down on their chests, giving them electric shocks, uh, trying to resuscitate uh, and get the heart going, or they die in an intensive care unit with tubes coming out of every orifice, often with very negative effects of cancer drugs or other treatments. And unfortunately, the effect of medicalization is that those last few days and weeks can be turned, instead of something really positive, can actually be turned into something terrible. I mean, medicine, I'm afraid, can turn lives into a kind of living hell. And that means we need the courage to say no. We need to, the courage to say enough is enough. And you know, if we think about Christian attitudes to death, there's a very interesting sort of ambivalence about it, which I've often reflected about. On the one hand, in Christian thinking, death is an enemy that we fight against. In fact, it's the ultimate enemy, the last enemy and which is going to be ultimately destroyed. And so, as we in the medical profession and elsewhere fight against death, we're actually upholding life and the fact that God is a God of life and not a God of death. We're paying witness to the value of life. But at the same time, in Christian thinking, death can change from being an enemy into a strange kind of mercy, a severe mercy, as C.S. Lewis said, a, a gateway and that's why we need wisdom to know when to fight and hold death away and when to say enough is enough. It's now time for me to stop medical treatment and time for me to say I don't need more, more treatment. Yes, I want to have symptom control and pain relief, but I don't need to have that latest cancer treatment. I'm ready to prepare myself 
for the next stage of my life. Um, because death is a gateway into the presence of God himself. So I've been very struck by a group of documents that were called in Latin, the Ars Moriendi. And these were self-help manuals for dying people in the medieval period, mainly pre-Reformation, talking about sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century in Europe. And of course, Europe at that time was a very dangerous and frightening place. There were terrible plagues were sleeping through. There was warfare, and there were accidents, and famine, and you never knew when death would come and strike you. And for medieval Christians, the greatest fear was that they might have to face death without the benefit of a priest being there to be able to help them to die well, and to pray for them, and to usher them into the presence of God. And so these documents started circulating, and they were sort of self-help documents. They were for lay people. And in fact, a modern equivalent, which I rather like, it would be dying for dummies. It's a, it's a, it was the idea of a simple self-help documents for Christian people and to how to die well. Because most people were not couldn't read, the documents had these very vivid woodcut images which showed a dying person and then various temptations and demons who were tempting them and then the presence of Christ in the room and all kinds of... It's, a, it's fascinating documents. But they um, they started with this, this uh, thing called the commendation of dying, which sounds bizarre to us, but where, they again, they talked about the positive things that dying could be. But they also then talked about the temptations for dying people. And the, and the virtues that could resist these temptations. They talked about repentance and, and receiving pardon. And also they looked to the, the dying Christ as a model, the Christ on the cross, as a model of what it meant to die well. And um, I was just very struck by this, this model. And so I've tried to write a 21st century version of an Ars Moriendi. And, and if you're interested, it, it's, it was published last year by IVP, so if you f- forgive the self-publicity, but it, it's called Dying Well, and uh, there are some copies on the bookstall. And I just want to uh, talk a bit about some of the material in that book and, and how I think it's relevant. And particularly, I want to focus on the opportunities uh, of dying well. Um, And one physician put it like this. One thing I have learned is that dying well is rarely a coincidence. Rather, it results from choices made throughout life. After all, dying well is nothing more than living well right up to the end. Isn't that wise? The choices we make now will make a difference in how we die. Another author wrote this, a good death requires more than practical caring. Relationships need completing and sometimes mending. Faith needs nurturing. Stories need telling. There is work to be done, the work of completing a life. There are goals to fulfill, such as writing a life story or working on some kind of document to pass on to the next generations. There's saying goodbye. There's preparing myself spiritually. 
So I think one of the opportunities, and I've got them there on the handout, is spiritual growth. And, you know, isn't it a strange paradox of our humanity that so often our growth happens most in times of adversity? It's not when things are going smoothly and everything's fine that we really grow as a person, that we grow spiritually. So often it is when we meet real challenges and difficulties. There is the opportunity to grow. And that supremely is true about dying. And I've seen this on on numerous occasions. And to me it's always very wonderful, even beautiful, because from the outside the body is deteriorating and decaying. And it's obvious that, that things are just going downhill. And you can see all the signs of disease or aging or decay or cancer or whatever. But on the inside, the person is growing. And, and it's almost like they become more obvious, that, that the, the body becomes more transparent. You can see more of the beautiful person that's inside. And one author put it like this, spiritually a dying person is very much alive. They're outwardly wasting away, but internally growing. Spiritual growth at the end of life can involve a new awareness, a new understanding of the spiritual life, of a reinvigorated prayer or devotional life. Even Alzheimer's cannot touch the life of the spirit. I think that's a really important thing to take away. You know, we don't know sometimes what's happening deep time sound in somebody, but even as they approach the end of their life, there is real potential for spiritual growth. And uh, I, I was very struck years ago by um, a friend of mine called Stuart, who had a, uh, he was a very quiet, rather introverted musician, rather scholarly, found it quite difficult to talk to people. And... Um, and then he was diagnosed with a, t- with a very aggressive kind of cancer, lymphoma, which had spread throughout his body. He had chemotherapy. He was only in his 30s. We were quite good friends. We did music together. Um, he had chemotherapy. The cancer went away. Then it came back. Uh, the doctors were giving more treatment, and they were talking about new experimental cancer treatments and so on. And I remember having a conversation with him, and I sensed he was closer to death than he realized And I said to him, if I could give you three months of life and then you were to to die, what would you do with those three months? And he thought for a moment, he said, you know what, if I knew I just had three months to live, I would stop my medical studies. He was studying for a PhD. And what I would do is I would write a letter to everyone I've ever known in my life. And I would want to share with them my experience of what was happening and also share with them my hope and my trust in the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. And I was very shocked because that wasn't the steward that I thought I knew. That wasn't the answer I expected. But that's exactly what happened. He did stop all the treatment. He was just having palliative care. He was at home having pain relief and so on. And he started writing letters. And because this was some years ago, he, he did it from his address book. He went through his address book starting in the A's and writing handwritten letters to all the people he knew. And he must have written several hundred letters in those last three months. Every day he was taking them off to the and posting the letter. And then he passed away quite peacefully and there was a memorial service and over 400 people came to that memorial service 
to remember this quiet, introverted guy. Many of them were there simply because they'd received a letter. And I remember sitting in that service, which was quite emotional and intense, and actually I was feeling, you know, I'm quite envious of Stuart, because he was able to say the kind of things which most of us never say. He was able to have those kind of experiences that most of us never have. He died well, and he used the experience of dying as a very profound thing. So, I think there are different ways for us in how dying well could be, but, but that's just one example of spiritual growth. Stuart was growing. He was learning things about himself. He was learning things that were really important to him. And it wasn't until the crisis came that he knew that actually music was not the most important thing. The most important thing was to share what God had given him. And um, a friend of mine, Rico Tice at All Souls Church, was, was visiting a, a lady from All Souls in, in, uh, in hospital. Uh, she, she was terminally ill. She'd been in hospital for a number of weeks. He went up to, the, uh, to visit her, and he went up to the, um, to the reception desk on the ward, and he gave her name, and the nurse looked at him rather blankly, and then she said, Oh, you mean Gabby. We all call her the angel Gabriel because she shines. I thought, again, wasn't that a, a remarkable thing of a, a, a not well-known at all uh, lady in the congregation who was just in the process of, of coming to the end of her life. She was shining with the light of Christ. And, of course, in that well-known passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the clay pot that our bodies are clay pot, but inside there is this amazing treasure. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies. And dying well is a huge opportunity for that, that the life of Jesus can be manifested in the body that's decaying. So dying gives us an opportunity to give new attention and concentration on the inner self that by God's grace can be renewed and restored and glorified for eternity. But it's also interesting that as I've spoken to people, I've realized that it's an opportunity for carers too. When someone is dying, there's an opportunity for spiritual growth for the carers, for loved ones and relatives and friends. Many people have told me that their own faith in Christ was strengthened and deepened and made more concrete as they accompanied a dying believer in those last weeks and days. So it's an opportunity for spiritual growth. It's an opportunity for being thankful. That may seem strange. Why should dying well be an opportunity for gratitude? And yet, so often, that's what we find. Um, I was very struck when I wrote a... a um, IVP said that this book, Dying Well, was coming out, and then because it was delayed, they, I, they changed the publicity date by several months later. And then they got this message from this lady saying, oh dear, I really need to read this book. I've got a terminal illness. I suppose I'm just going to have to stay alive for another few months. <laughs> so so um, I said, oh, for goodness sake, let's, let me send her the manuscript. So I sent her the manuscript, and she sent back this lovely um, email back. And... Um, it turned out that she was a young lady with advanced cystic fibrosis, and she was uh, uh, approaching uh, death. 
And these are the words that she sent back to me. When it comes to dying well, gratitude has been one of the most transformative things for me. Gratitude for my body, despite its brokenness. For my medical team, despite their limits. For the decay of my lungs, because it makes me notice and appreciate most of my waking breaths. A while back, I started praying before I took medications, the way I do before food. Lord, thank you for these medications. Thank you for the people who invented, prescribed and prepared them. Please bless the medications to my body and my body in your service. I began to see them as the blessings they are. Gratitude has changed so much for me, even though I'm still not great at it. Isn't that remarkable? That, and I've seen that repeatedly, that actually when you're dying, you, you often focus on the little things. It's like, you know, just that cup of water. It's the fact that somebody's splumped up your pillow. It's the fact that... Uh, you know, even the food, you know, you're, you're just grateful for the care you're receiving. And it's like it's focusing us. Instead of being, you know, always saying, oh, why haven't I got the latest iPad? Or, the, you know, focusing on things which are fundamentally trivial, it's dying which teaches us what really matters. And often it's the little things. It's the little things for which we can be grateful for. Third, dying is an opportunity for healing and building and celebrating and completing relationships. It's an opportunity for broken relationships to be healed and restored. And it's an opportunity for good relationships to be made stronger and more open and more honest. It's an opportunity for sharing from the heart and saying sorry and thank you to those who are closest. In order to die well, I've got to be at peace with God, but I've also got to be at peace with those who are most important in my life. And some people talk about completing relationships. I'm not sure that language is, is right, because there's a sense in which our relationships can never be completed, this, time, this side of the new heaven and the new earth. I'm sure there is going to be more growth and development and, of, of our relationships, even in the new heaven and the new earth. But I think we shouldn't die with unfinished business. If there's unfinished business in our relationships, then that, there's an opportunity for things to be straightened out. And one of the strange things is the person who is dying has a kind of relational authority. When you're dying, you can actually say, you know, I really feel we need to talk about this, or I really would like to speak to my brother before I die. And you have the, it's very hard to say, well, I'm not going to speak to my brother. You know, that, that when someone is dying, they have the chance as kind of, relational authority and that's something that can be used for great good as a way of healing and restoring of saying sorry um, and, and completing relationships so it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to mend to strengthen to celebrate relationships fourth it's an opportunity for finding forgiveness an older woman whom I call, call Mary, and this is an entirely true story, was diagnosed with a very advanced aggressive cancer. She'd experienced a life of broken relationships, and her daughter described her as an intensely angry person. She had a sharp and destructive tongue. Her daughter had found faith in Christ as a young adult, but Mary, her mother, had always rejected and rebuffed any attempt to talk about Gospel. But then came the sudden news that she had this advanced cancer and the doctors told her that she only had a few weeks left to live. 
And her daughter, who I know, said to me that, that her mother turns to her. They were sitting in the outpatient department, in the oncology department. And you can imagine what it's like, you know, in the waiting area, in an NHS hospital with, you know, people going to and fro and telephones ringing and doors opening and so on. Her mother turns to her daughter and says, I've just got three things to ask you. How can I forgive? How can I be forgiven? And what happens when I die? And there sitting, her daughter said, sitting in these seats in the outpatient area, she shared with her, and her mother shared with her. What turned out was her mother had been abused as a child. That was why the first question was, how can I forgive? And all this anger and bitterness was actually the outcome of these terrible childhood experiences, which she'd never talked about. And for the first time, she talks about her, the secret, the shame, the hurt. Mary's daughter shared about the person of Christ and forgiveness and that she could be wiped clean, that heaven was a place of safety where nothing could harm her. And, and from that time in the outpatient department, Mary's life changed. And her daughter said, my mum was remade two weeks before she died. I've never seen anything more radical in my life. Mary was admitted to a local nursing home for terminal care. In the place of previous bitterness and resentment, there was thankfulness. Her daughter remembers Mary's gratitude on receiving a plate of pureed vegetables. I can't believe how kind you are to me. And sitting with her grandchildren, you've got no idea what it feels like to pray for the first time. And Mary died barely two weeks after that conversation with her daughter holding her hand and reading to her from the Bible and sharing... Um, um, verses and and and, um, and immediately after Mary's death, the nurses gathered in her room. This was such an amazing lady. She was so grateful for everything. She was so kind. She was so gentle. She had no fear about dying. We've never seen anyone die like this. And her daughter was able to share the gospel. She said, with the dead body of her mother on the bed, she was able to share the gospel with the nurses uh, in in that nursing home. So, just extraordinary. All that happened because of a terminal diagnosis. So, so death is an opportunity. Dying is an opportunity to find forgiveness. Learning to let go. It's an opportunity for me to let go of tasks which I'll never complete, responsibilities I can no longer maintain. But, you know, letting go is not as easy as it sounds. And as we get older, there are many th ways for us to hang on to. We find it very hard to let go. And a Christian doctor said this, many of the losses associated with ageing are inevitable and often forced of us, but some things we can choose to give up voluntarily. And when we can see the losses coming, I've observed it's much better to recognise them, plan for them and make changes gradually and proactively rather than waiting for the crisis. So... God's plan, as we learn to die well, is that we're progressively detached from our earthly attachments so that we start to put all our attachments on the new heaven and the new earth, on meeting him and on what that's going to mean. For now, I'm being called to focus on my Lord and my Redeemer and my Bridegroom. You know, it's very striking to me that the New Testament very rarely speaks about Christian believers as dying. It uses this phrase, they fall asleep. And, and that phrase occurs time and time again. In fact, interestingly, 
sometimes it says that Christ himself dies so that we can fall asleep. In other words, Christ experienced in his body the ultimate horror of death on the cross so that we don't need to. And one of the most striking examples of that phrase is where is the martyrdom of Stephen, where in Luke, writing the story of the Acts, says, as the boulders were crashing in, and he's, being, he's dying in this horrific and violent way, and it says, and he fell asleep. And as I've reflected on that, why did they use this phrase? Why are they so keen on using this phrase? I think there are two reasons why. The first one is that The point about sleep is that sleep is totally different from coma, medically. When someone is in a coma, you never know whether the person is still there. They could have had terrible brain damage, and when they finally come back to consciousness, it could be that the person is gone. They could be in a persistent coma, or they could just die. The thing about sleep, natural sleep, is we all know that when someone is asleep, the person is still there. We only have to touch them, and instantly the person is there. They wake up. And that's the point about why Christians fall asleep. The person is still there. The person is safe. The person is going to wake up. And so the reason that Christians used this phrase was to remind one another that death was not permanent. It was simply a temporary thing. The person was safe. But the second thing I was con- become convinced is that a lot of people are just very frightened and, and anxious about what the experience of dying is like. You know, what must it be like to die? Is it like you're being sucked into this terrible black hole? Is it going to be terrifying and am I going to be struggling and, and horrific sort of things fill the mind? Do you know what? Our Heavenly Father, in his graciousness, has allowed us to practice what it's like to die Every single night of our lives. You know exactly what it's like to die because you've done it thousands of times. It is putting your head on that pillow after a very long, exhausting, terribly tiring day and you're putting your head on a pillow. Even better than that, it's putting your head on the pillow on the first day of the holidays knowing that what you're going to wake up to is going to be completely different. And that's what it feels like. And so interestingly, Christian believers for hundreds of years have used the evening time as a time of preparation for dying. That that falling asleep is a way of practicing dying. And I think that's a tradition we can recapture. It's safe to fall asleep. That's why they use the words of Simeon. Lord, now dismiss me. Why is it safe for Simeon to say, I can now go, Lord. Answer, because my eyes have seen. Once we've seen, really seen, God's glory and God's hope, it's safe. It's safe to fall asleep. It's safe. And that's something we can practice, falling asleep in faith. So I haven't time to talk about the others, and and, and I'm running out of time. I just want to talk, uh, if you go down... Those are the number of temptations that dying can bring. And um, there were five temptations in um, in the medieval world. Interestingly, one of them was pride, spiritual pride. I think they were much more concerned about pride than we are. I don't think it would it would come on our list of things 
the temptations of dying well. But I've added two for modern people, which were not temptations in the medieval period, but they really are now. And one is the temptation just to deny death, to deny its reality and pretend it doesn't exist. And the second is self-reliance. I can do this myself. I don't need help. I am the master of my life. And I think those are modern temptations also for Christian people. I've seen Christian people who, I'm afraid, have failed, fallen into these temptations. But then when it comes to what are the questions for discussion? Well, I think these are the sort of questions we need to ask. We need to, uh, this is for the person who's dying themselves. What symptoms am I likely to suffer and how can these be reduced? Should I carry on receiving medical treatment or would it be better to stop medical treatments? And there's no easy answer to that. And I think actually it's often different for different people. One of the ways when we're teaching medical students we talk about is balancing the burdens and the benefits of all medical treatments. So medical treatments can bring benefits, they can do good things, but they can also have bad things, side effects and really bad negative things. And the whole art is working out whether the burdens are greater than the benefits. Because if they are, if the burdens of this cancer treatment, which isn't going to cure me, but is just turning my life into hell, if that is worse than the benefit it can bring, then for goodness sake, stop the treatment. And let's have the courage to say, we don't need this. I don't need to hang on desperately to try and prolong my life. But I do want these last days to be valuable. I want them to be days that I can use. I want them to be days... For, up, for me and for other people. Where would I like to die? Actually, dying in an NHS hospital is nearly always not the best place to die. You're much better off to die either in a specialist hospice. I understand there's only one major hospice in the Northern Ireland, but you know, maybe that's something that desperately needs to be given attention. Are there more than one? Yeah, but anyway, it, I, I, either dying in a hospice or else um, at home with the right kind of support. Often the best place to die is at home, but you need the right kind of support. You need proper professional um, palliative care support. Um, should there be a do not attempt CPR order? Now, this is a very complicated one, and I haven't really got time to discuss it in practice now. There will be a short time for questions. I'd be happy to talk about that a bit more. I think far too much attention is often placed on this. It's actually not a big medical issue. Uh, the fear is it has a kind of symbolic significance. People feel that if I sign a DNR order or I agree to a DNR order, it's, it's in some way I'm agreeing that I can just be neglected, that people are not going to bother with me. So it has a kind of symbolic, which isn't true. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that in the event that you are discovered dead, Unexpectedly, people are not going to start the whole cardiac arrest procedure, which is the last thing that you want. Um, who will support me physically, psychologically, and spiritually? And then here are some questions. If we're the carer or the relative, what are the sort of ways of having this conversation? A good question to start the conversation is just this first one. What is your understanding of what's going on at the moment, of your current situation? Get the person to talk themselves. What you sometimes find is that their way they think is going on is completely different from the medical situation or the way that other people think. Um, so but get them to talk about it, to share their own 
perspective. And then question two, as you look to the future, what are you most worried about? What's your greatest concerns? And, and these differ. Some people are just terrified of pain. And they have a horrific, maybe they watch someone die in agony and they're just hor horrified by the prospect of just unbearable, unsustainable pain. Well, it's much better to talk about that openly and explain, actually, nobody needs to have terrible, unbearable pain. Um, with the right kind of care, physical pain can always be dramatically treated and either completely eliminated or at least massively reduced. However, we've all heard of terrible stories, often used by pro-euthanasia campaigners, of people crying out in agony uh, despite receiving proper medical care. And what that tells you is that those people were in pain, terrible pain, but it wasn't physical pain. There are many other kinds of pain at the end of life. And as I've put down there on the, in the handout... Cicely Saunders, the pioneer, wonderful Christian lady who pioneered um, palliative care, she came up with this concept of total pain. And she said there's physical pain, but we can treat the physical pain. The problems are the other kinds of pain. There's psychological pain. So some people are just filled with anxiety or depression or fears going around their head. And then there's relational pain. Some people just have these broken relationships. Um, and, and the thing they're really crying out in agony about is the fact that they haven't seen their son for 20 years. And they, the last time they spoke, they had this terrible argument. And now they're going to die and never be re reconciled to their son. And then there's spiritual pain. Um, some people are filled with fear of guilt, of looking back, haunted by memories of sin in the past, of failure, anxieties about what's going to happen when I die, uh, all, the, all these kind of things. And surprise, surprise, morphine and pain relief doesn't help those kinds of pain. But what we need to do, therefore, is address all four levels of pain. So for physical pain, we can give, there are physical treatments that are very effective, but we also, for psychological pain, we need either talking therapy, some kind of counselling, or sometimes just friendship, just talking, just helping people to share their anxieties. For relational pain, now is the time to contact the son and say, your father or mother wants to talk to you and be reconciled with you. They're dying. Will you come and can we help you to have that conversation to heal this relational pain? And of course for spiritual pain there's the need for spiritual resources, for prayer, sometimes for forgiveness. Cicely Saunders put the chapel at the centre of her custom-built hospice and made it so that however sick people were in their beds, they could be pushed into the chapel. And that she had the daily cycle of worship and the daily um, communion uh, in, in the chapel so that people could, however sick they were, there, there was the spiritual care and support. And I think that's a great vision whatever our churchmanship, to make sure that... And I do think the Holy Communion actually is a, is a... Historically, Christians have always used Holy Communion as a way for the dying person to actually... as food for the journey. And I think there's, a, there's real wisdom there. And then question three, as you look to the future, what are your goals for this stage of life? What are the trade-offs you're willing to make? What would you long to happen before you die and how might we help you to achieve this? So God's plan for this age is not to abolish human suffering, it's to redeem it. It's to bring blessing and healing 
out of this terrible experience of death and dying. And um, I think just a word about dementia and I'll stop. I think dementia has replaced cancer as the disease that people fear most. And particularly among Christian people. In fact, I think it's something to do, particularly with evangelicals and um, Protestant Christians, that because we put such an emphasis on faith and on belief and on conviction and all these internal things, that dementia seems particularly horrific. Because what's going to happen to my faith if I get confused? If I've even forgotten that Christ has died for me? You know, Am I going to lose my faith? Am I going to be... So I, I think there is a real fear about dementia for Christian people. And I think we need to remind ourselves that the person we are, I've put it in this phrase, that, that, that God holds us utterly secure in his knowledge, that he knew you before the foundation of the world, that he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, that he's bring, wooing you and seeking you and bringing you to himself, that he's been holding and teaching and growing and, and protecting you and forgiving you. And do you think that a bit of dementia and brain rot is going to affect that? That, that your personhood is held totally secure in God. And actually the spiritual care of people with dementia is something which is a growing area and I think a very important area because... Even the person with dementia, God is at work. The Holy Spirit is in there. And um, a friend of mine, has, her, her father was a great man of prayer. And then he developed Alzheimer's disease. And he became more and more confused and, and eventually stopped speaking. And he was slumped in his chair. She was caring for him at home. And there happened to be a program on the television which he was staring at. And it was, the program was about prayer. It was songs of praise. And she said to him, do you still pray, Dad? And he hadn't spoken for days. And he suddenly said, yes. And she said, what do you say to God when you pray? And there's a long pause and he says, I say, hello. And that was it. And I thought, actually that's quite profound, isn't it? I mean, what more do you need to say to God than hello? And maybe we're so sort of cerebral cognitive types of Christians that we can't really understand how the spirit can reach out to someone at a deeper level at a non-verbal level at a non-cognitive level but who knows what God is doing in the life of the person with dementia and there are ways people with skill of, of finding communicating it's often things of the past like for instance with my mother it was the old authorised version reading the authorised version was she suddenly came alive and responded to that. And also the old brethren hymns. You know, we would sing, the family would gather around the bedside and would start singing the, the brethren hymns. And all of a sudden, from the bed, she'd be coming up, singing out, joining in, singing the alto line. You know, there it was, deep down, there was something really very precious. Okay, so, you know, when we care for a person with dementia, with genuine respect and care and love we're actually pointing towards the new heaven and the new earth. We're saying, this is not the end of the story. Yes, this person is a wreck. Yes, their brain is shot through. Yes, they're dying. And yet, something wonderful is happening. This is not the end of the story. And so when we treat people in the way that they were meant to be, or the way that God is going to recreate them in the new heaven and the new earth, 
we're actually pointing them towards the future. So Christian caring is always orientated towards the future. It's always treating people now in the light of what, by God's grace, they're going to become. We don't know what's happening in the heart of, of, of people. One of the questions that people have asked to me, the most difficult thing is, how do I as a Christian care for someone who is dying who I don't think has faith? How can I care for them? But, you know, I don't think it's for us, ultimately, to make the decision. We don't know what is happening in someone's heart. Deathbed conversions do happen, and they can even happen just before the moment of death. I came across this little couplet, which, which comes from the 19th century, uh, and, it, and it's basically describes someone falling off their horse and being about to be killed, which was pretty common in the 19th century. And the couplet simply says, Between the saddle and the ground, he mercy sought and mercy found. Bang. <laughs> so we just don't know, do we? Our, our task is to carry on reaching out with love, with compassion, to, offering to pray, offering to read a passage from the Bible, just being there, holding hands. Remember that the last two senses that go in someone who's dying is hearing and touch. So you must always speak to the person, even if they're completely responsive. Assume they can hear you. And there's always time for a cuddle. There's always time to hold a hand. And there's always time to say words of love. Thanks very much. Are other cultures better at dealing with death than we are? Gosh, that's a very good question. I think historically, other cultures were often better in the sort of pre-modern era. But, you know, the truth is that globalization and technology and healthcare has gone around the world. And actually, I, I don't think that other cultures are necessarily any better. In fact, sometimes they're even worse. Uh, my experience of dealing with many uh, non-Western cultures that have medical technology is they're even more invested in the medical technology. It's even more of a, you know, because it's Western, it comes with a whole load of other sort of positive things. So actually, trying to say enough is enough is incredibly difficult, paradoxically, in many non-Western cultures. There are cultures which, where the intensive care, they have intensive care units filled with people on ventilators because they can never switch them off. So actually, I think this is a universal problem. And I would love it if the Christian church, if we could point to the Christian community and say, these are people who know what it means to die well. Thanks. So the, the, the point was that in Brazil, death was very much part of life. And I think that is true of the traditional, sort of more rural pre-technological cultures. But I would guess that if you go to Buenos Aires and to, you know, the modern thrusting places, you will find these Western attitudes coming in. And, and, and that's the problem. The, this Western culture is going around the world. Interesting. So the, the question is, the grieving process for the relatives is helped when there's a wake. I... I mean, I, I understand that's much more common in Irish culture than it is now in, in England. Um, my guess would be that it isn't the wake that's the point. It's the quality of the relationships, and it's particularly the openness. I think if you've got a wake and everyone is pretending, 
everyone is going through the motions, everyone is just saying things. I don't think necessarily that's helpful at all. But I think if you get people, the relatives together, and they can be really honest with one another, and honest about, you know, this last time has been difficult and challenging, but here's some of the things we learned, and here this, I wish I could do this better, you know, and that kind of thing, then that can be really healing. But I, so I, d- I don't think it happens automatically. I, I think that kind of grieving and healing process depends on honesty and, and openness. And, and sometimes there's this Christian thing where we've got to be very positive and aren't we grateful to God and everything's fine. And I can't really be honest about the fact that some things were really horrible and some things were really difficult. That's why I have this quote, which I didn't refer to, that that suffering is not a question which demands an answer. It's not a problem which demands a solution. It's a mystery which demands a presence. So we can't explain, explain away, solve suffering, but we can always be there. We can be the presence with people who are suffering. Thanks very much. So the question was, how to support someone with dementia someone who's caring for someone with dementia, when the carer can't provide the 24-hour care, but the person is still mobile. And I think that is a, a very huge issue. And I think, you know, the work of caring in these situations can be immense. And one of the sad things, you know, for me, is that in the Christian community, when it comes to young children... Everyone rallies round. Oh, yeah, they've got young children. I'll come and I'll make you a meal and I'll come and help with the babysitting and everything's fine. But when it comes to caring for elderly people, there's a kind of shame. There's a sort of, it's not quite right. It's not appropriate. And so then often someone carries this absolutely unsustainable burden until they break. So surely the answer is that God has put us in communities and in families and spiritual families so that we bear one another's burdens, so that we take the load. And that applies just as much for caring for elderly people with dementia and all the issues as it does in caring for children. But we need to reorientate our thinking, don't we, to see this as part of what we're here for. Thank you, John. This is our appreciation. Okay, thank you very much.